0: I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 15. And I'm going to go ahead and read verses 21 through 47. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. Holy Scripture says, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome, And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave your one and only Son for our salvation. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would enable us to see, the weightiness and wonder of this sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to walk through this passage in three parts. The first part, uh, verses 21 through 32, where men crucify Jesus and verbally abuse him. You can see the The context of this passage has been set up in verse 15. At the end of verse 15, Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. And then at the end of verse 20, the soldiers led Jesus out to crucify him. And now we come to that moment of crucifixion. Jesus uh, ordinarily would have carried the uh, the horizontal crossbeam on his back as he was walking to the place of crucifixion. But presumably, Mark doesn't spell it out, presumably he was so weakened from the, the flogging that had taken place in verse 15 that it was necessary for someone else to carry the crossbeam. And so the soldiers compelled this man, Simon, to do so. It, 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 it's just really interesting to think about Simon carrying the cross of the Lord when you think about a passage like Mark chapter 8, verse 34, where Jesus said, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. Of course, Jesus' point is not the physicality of having a literal crossbeam on your back, but it's still very illustrative of that of that truth, that cost, that suffering. They brought Jesus to Golgotha, which means place of a skull. That seems like a a very aptly named place for crucifixion. Verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Again, Mark doesn't, doesn't, he doesn't explain what that means. Some people think that this wine mixed with myrrh would have had a a narcotic pain-deadening effect to help Jesus in the midst of his suffering. But in any case, Jesus refused it. He would, he would drink the bitter cup. Of suffering that the Father was pouring out on him, but he refused this offer of wine. Verse 24 and 25 tell us that they crucified him. Perhaps you have, over the years, <clears throat> learned about what is involved in crucifixion that that crossbeam, once you are at the site of crucifixion, the one being crucified, their forearms, not, not, the, not the middle of the palm, but their forearms uh, would either be tied or nailed to that crossbeam. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that Jesus' hands were nailed to the crossbeam. And then that, that horizontal crossbeam, Beam would be attached to a vertical beam that was already in the ground, thus forming a, a T-like structure, and then they would tie or nail the feet to the to the vertical cross beam. There might also have been a, a peg in the middle of the vertical crossbeam where you kind of lean a little weight. Uh, This is a very shameful and physically tortuous way to die. The the exertion required simply to hold yourself up and breathe was exhausting and would take its toll. Ben Ben Witherington wrote... Eventually, the man could no longer hold up his chest cavity, and the result was suffocation, often after great gasps for breath. Of course, the the, the gospel writers are very restrained. They don't go into great detail about Jesus' physical suffering. One reason may be out of simple respect. Another reason may be because the physical suffering... As bad as it was, wasn't the heart of the suffering that he endured. uh, We're told that they crucified him at the third hour. That's a reference to around 9 a.m. in the morning. And in fulfillment of Psalm 22, Psalm 22 is a powerful prophecy That foretells the the suffering, the abandonment, the death of our Lord, and ultimately his triumph also. But but in Psalm 22, it is it is foretold that they would divide his garments and cast lots. And so scripture is being fulfilled right before our very eyes. In verse 26, you have the charge. We talked about this last week. The the public, incriminating charge against Jesus is that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And so that, that, that phrase, the king of the Jews, is placed over his, over his head. The idea there is that he was, he was usurping, uh, claiming to be, uh, pretending to be, a a political worldly king when in fact he was not and so that was viewed as as insurrection and treason against the empire and of course we talked about we talked about that last week but that that charge is over his head and then we find out in verse 27 that they crucified two robbers one on his right and one on his left now does, that, does, verse, does verse 27 make you think of a passage we read earlier in the Gospel of Mark? It's very, it's very, it's very powerful to think about this because our conception of, of, of glory is very upside down from God's perspective. And if, if you go back a few chapters to chapter 10, as a ransom for many. And it's actually by laying down his life, by sacrificing himself, by not saving himself, by drinking the bitter cup of judgment and death. It is by laying down his life that he saves others and builds a living temple, a spiritual house before the Lord. In order in order to see Jesus rightly you you cannot see him as a ordinary worldly self-serving king instead you have to see him as the king who lays down his life for others that's the, that's the part of the gospel And it's only when we see Him that way, as the Savior who bears the sins of His people, only then can we truly believe in Him and enter into fellowship. So, in verses 21 to 32, men crucify Jesus and verbally abuse Him. Now, I want you to notice something, because we're about to shift emphasis in verse 32. But I want you to see how verses 21 through 32 are emphasizing the activities of men. Jesus is very passive. God is not overtly present in these verses. The activity of men takes center stage, right? Verse 21, they compel Simon. Verse 22, they brought him to Golgotha. Verse 23, they offered him wine. Verse 24, they crucified him. Verse 25, they crucified him. Verse 27, they crucified two robbers with him. Verse 29, they derided him. Verse 31, they mocked him. Verse 32, those who were crucified with him, also reviled him. It's very clear. They, men, were doing these things to him or concerning him. And all of that changes in verse 33. Now, as we come to verse 33, what men are doing recedes to the background. And what comes to the foreground is what God is doing. Which is always the key question. What is God doing? Well, my summary of verses 33 to 39 is that God is at work in the death of His Son in three particular ways. Number one, God gives up His Son to the darkness. Verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, this is noon. This is the middle of the day. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Darkness in the middle of the day is evidently And there's a very rich background to understanding what is going on here. You might recall from our teaching on Mark chapter 13, verse 24, that Jesus said, which I explained, uh, I believe he was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem that would take place, within a generation, and ended up happening about 40 years later in 70 AD, but in describing that judgment, Jesus said in verse 24 of chapter 13, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Do you remember that verse? It talked about the, the cosmic lights going out. Is this language of, of the sun being darkened and the cosmic lights going out as a way of describing God's judgment being brought upon a particular people. One, one of those passages, actually, is in the book of Amos, chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. This is a judgment passage, a judgment upon God's people. And it says in Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son the end of it like a bitter day. There's one more very important passage to the background of this darkness, and it's in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 10. You remember the the ten plagues, all demonstrations of God's judgment upon the Egyptians as, as God was ready to bring his people out of the land of slavery and into the land of Canaan. There were ten plagues. And a few weeks ago, when we reflected on the Lord's Passover, we we dealt with the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. But do you know what the ninth plague was? Darkness. Thick and impenetrable darkness. Uh, Exodus chapter 10, verse 21 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. This is remarkable. When you understand this background, then you can begin to understand what was really happening on the cross in the middle of the day when darkness covered the land. In the book of Exodus, all of the houses of the Egyptians, which included all of those firstborn sons of Egypt who were soon to die, were engulfed in thick darkness for three days. And then soon afterward, those firstborn sons would be slain by the angel of destruction. Meanwhile, the houses of the Israelites, there was light. And their firstborn sons would be spared. The death angel would pass over their homes because the blood of the lamb was shed. All all of that comes together in a most unexpected Jesus entered into the thick and impenetrable darkness of the Father's absence. And this takes us right into the heart of the Gospel. It's it's remarkable. You know, Mark chapter 1, do you know how Mark chapter 1 begins in terms of the life and ministry of Jesus? It begins with Jesus being baptized. In water, and the heavens open up, and the Spirit descends on Jesus, and the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, Jesus's ministry begins full of the presence of God. How does this ministry end? With the terrifying He's the sin-bearer. He bears our sin, our guilt, the judgment and punishment that we deserve. He is, he is treated as if he is guilty of all of the sin of his people and then the, the, the judgment of God and the wrath of God is poured out on him in full. Jesus is into the darkness on our behalf. He experienced God's judgment in our place. And Jesus felt the reality of it. It says in verse 34, after these three hours of of darkness, Jesus cried out, and He's taking upon His lips the opening words of Psalm 22, which I already referred to earlier, about the dividing up of His garments and the casting of lots. Psalm 22 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, we know why. We know why. Because He was bearing our sins In our place on the cross, God treated Jesus the way that we deserve to be treated so that He could treat us the way that Jesus deserves to be treated. Jesus entered into the darkness so that we could be brought into God's light. Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was judged in our place so that we could be forgiven and justified. Jesus was exiled from the presence of God so that we could be brought home. That's the gospel. Here's a practical application What do you do with your sin? You you and I have this in common. We are are sinners. We have many sins to our name. What do you do do with the brokenness? What do you do with the guilt and the guilty conscience? What do you do with the darkness that abounds, the, the, the darkness of evil that abounds in our world? External and internal. What do you do with that? What do you do with the the threat of judgment and punishment from a holy God? We're all we're always trying to find ways to manage our brokenness. Missing the point. Missing the point. This this utterly profound relational transaction is taking place between the Father and the Son. And these bystanders think that Jesus cried out for Elijah. That the prophet Elijah might make a heroic return and rescue him. They give them... Something to quench his thirst, and everybody's waiting to see what happens next. But what's important for our purposes is to go on to verse thirty-seven. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus finally dies, and his death in the, at, at the moment of his death. Two other things immediately happen that God is evidently doing. The first one is in verse thirty-eight. God tears the temple curtain from top to bottom. Now, this is really interesting because there, there were there were there were two curtains. And you have to understand, okay, we're not talking about those kind of curtains, okay? We're talking about massive curtains. For example, the first century historian, writer Josephus, describes the curtain that was between the courtyard and the temple. So it was was the more visible and public curtain. He, he describes it as being 80 to 90 feet high, and he writes that it was a Babylonian tapestry with embroidery of blue and fine linen, of scarlet also and purple, wrought with marvelous skill. That's, that's no that's no ordinary curtain, and the tearing of it would be a big deal. Now, people people debate whether. It, 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 is Mark talking about the the outer curtain that was between the courtyard and the and the holy place, or is he talking about the inner curtain that was between the holy place and the most holy place? I've kind of gone back and forth on it. I, 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 don't, I don't know, but I I doubt that it matters much. Mark doesn't even he doesn't even tell us what it means. He doesn't do any big reflection on it tells us that at the moment Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. I think it might signify any or all of three things. Number one, could be an ominous sign. As we've been walking through the last chapters of the Gospel of Mark, you will remember that one of the things that Jesus has been teaching is that The temple is about to be destroyed, right? In in, in chapter 11, he pronounced judgment on the temple. And in chapter 13, he said that it's going to be destroyed within a generation. And, And in chapters 11 and 12, he said that in the place of the old temple, there's going to be a new temple that's going to be built around him, a living temple consisting of his followers. And so... Jesus dies, God tears the curtain temple. It's a way of saying, hey, look, the temple, its days are numbered, and it's going to be destroyed. And at the same time, it can be a vindicating sign, because Jesus is the one who had been talking about these things and prophesying these things. Jesus has been speaking the truth. And those of you who know what he's been teaching, you better listen up and take heed. So it could be an ominous sign of the judgment to come. It could be a vindicating sign that, yes, what Jesus has been saying is true. I also wonder if it could be an interpreting sign of Jesus' death. You see, in verse 37, Jesus dies, and in verse 38, the curtain temple is torn. And I wonder if God is saying Jesus' death is like the tearing of the temple curtain. Because in the book of Hebrews, the Hebrews writer actually says in chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, not the temple curtain, his flesh, his body, his broken body. that through the sacrifice of Jesus, now we have access to the presence of God. I think that that the tearing of the temple curtain might mean any or all, of those three things, but certainly God is saying, Pay attention to the death of my son. And then in verse 39, God reveals the dignity of his son to a Roman centurion. This is remarkable when you contrast this with verse 32. Do you remember in verse 32? They said mockingly, Hey, if you come down from the cross. Then we will see your power to save and believe. But it's actually only in the the death and self-sacrifice of Christ that we can really come to see his full dignity and glory. And it's remarkable. How should the Roman centurion have such sight? I mean, Jesus has been condemned and flogged, crucified, mocked disfigured how, how should his eyes be opened to behold the glory of Jesus at this very moment when it looks like he's an utter failure earlier in Mark's gospel the father declared over Jesus this is my son earlier in Mark's gospel the demons called out, identifying Jesus as the Son of God. Earlier in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus acknowledged that He was the Son of God. But up until this point, no man, except for Jesus, no man has confessed that Jesus is God's Son. And it happens now, at the moment of Jesus' death. It says... When the centurion saw that in this way he breathed his last, Again, Mark doesn't go into detail. There must have been something about the way that Jesus died, the way that he carried himself, the way that he cried out, where the centurion perceived he was not the guilty fraud that the religious leaders had made him up to be, but that he was the real deal something about the way he died was unique and compelling and holy. Do you have eyes to see? Do you have eyes to see what looks like weakness and foolishness is actually the glory and power of God? Do you have eyes to see that? The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god for jews demand signs and greeks seek wisdom but we preach christ crucified a stumbling block to jews and folly to gentiles but to those who are called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god for the foolishness of god is wiser than men and the weakness of god is stronger than men you look at the cross, the old rugged cross, and see the glory and the victory of your Savior. The first man in Mark's gospel to confess that Jesus is God's son is not a disciple, but an outsider, not a Jew, but a Gentile, not a friend, but one who up until this very moment has functioned as an enemy this also reveals the glory of the gospel, that God reveals the dignity of his son to unexpected people. Outsiders, pagans, enemies, this gospel will conquer the world. Finally, the final section of this passage, verses 40 to 47. Jesus is honored 21 to 32 men are dishonoring Jesus and then in verses 32 to 38 we see what God is doing in the death of His son and now Mark wants to nudge us to honor this one who has died of course the first one to honor him was the Roman centurion but now in verses 40 to 41 we learn about several women Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome and other women. These are women who had followed Jesus for some time. They were among his wider group of disciples. They ministered to him out of their own means. They helped to fund the ministry of Jesus and his apostles. And here they are looking on No doubt in quiet honor to their Lord. We know that their intention, if you go ahead to chapter 16, verse 1, I don't want to get too far ahead of of ourselves, but their intention is to honor him. After the Sabbath day, their plan is to come and anoint his body. Isn't it interesting that the way that Mark presents this, the disciples, the male disciples, They fled. Peter tried to hang on a little longer and he failed. But these faithful women remained there. And they remained there as witnesses. They were witnesses of his death. Verse 47 tells us that two of them, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they were witnesses of his burial. And in chapter 16 They will become witnesses of something else that they were not expecting. Finally, verses 42 to 46, I'll just summarize this. But Joseph of Arimathea, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council that condemned Jesus to death. However, taking into account all that the other gospel writers tell us, we know that Joseph of Arimathea was not in agreement with that decision to condemn Jesus. He was a secret disciple. He had believed in Jesus but was covert about it. He was looking for the kingdom of God and it says that he took courage. He took courage to come and ask for the body of Jesus. Why did it take courage? Well, would you want to be identified? with a condemned criminal who had just been publicly shamed and crucified outside the city? Might have other council members found out. Well, Joseph's loyalties are revealed and he, he took courage. Pilate was surprised that Jesus had already died because frankly, sometimes those who were crucified would linger hours death